We're starting a three-week mini-series called Glory Incarnate. It's going to be a look at the glory and the majesty and the beauty of the incarnation, which is God becoming man in Christ Jesus. This is what we celebrate in this season. It's going to be a special, special couple weeks here. Next week is our carols and candlelight service. Uh, we will continue the series, but we've got a lot of special elements happening, uh, some different um, expressions of worship, some spoken words. We'll have a lot of nativity and all of that, so make sure you're here next week on the 15th. Tonight we're talking about the glory of the coming king, the glory of the coming king. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. If you want to read along with me, please do. Verse 7 says this, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, please be here with us tonight, Holy Spirit. We're looking for your impartation to us. Help me to be clear and to be simple that we might see your true glory this evening. Um, one of my wife's and my, uh, it's not even a guilty pleasure. We are, we love this show. Favorite shows on Netflix is The Crown. Does anyone watch The Crown? A couple people, a couple people willing to admit that. Okay. Crown's a great show. Crown's a great show. I don't really have a royal family infatuation. My wife is really interested in the royal family. And whenever I watch stuff about the royal family, I get sucked in. I don't know what it is, but I'm really interested in it all of a sudden. Uh, and Netflix has this series. It's, it's actually a very excellent show. Uh, called The Crown. And it's a story about Queen Elizabeth, the current queen's ascent to the throne. Uh, when she was 27 years old is where it picks up. Uh, it starts. Uh, it tracks the journey of uh, King Edward VII, who um, abdicated the throne. So he resigned from being king. He, he laid down the crown uh, for love, which is like a very sweet and controversial undertone to the story. Um, and that changed the line of succession from his future children to his brother, who was George VI. You right, remember him, uh, Colin Firth played him in the king's speech. He was the king with the stutter. So went from Edward's line, jumped over to George's. 16 years later, after George took the throne, he died from lung cancer. And all of a sudden, at the age of 27, Elizabeth becomes the queen of England. And this is now post-World War II, so like the world has changed. Things are different. Um, this whole idea of royal monarchs and kings and queens was kind of becoming like out of vogue a little bit in sense of like their distance and they're divinely appointed by God. And people, just this modern era was kind of wrestling with this. And so uh, one of the storylines has to do with her coronation, which they make the bold and controversial decision to televise it, which 
Obviously, it had never been done before because the technology didn't exist, but it was also was massively controversial because this was supposed to be these sacred and divine moments in, in Westminster Abbey that, that, that no commoner before would have ever witnessed this moment. And so they televise it. And the result is the reaction from the people. It draws them in, as it would, and they get to see for the first time things nobody has, has ever seen at their level. They get to be in Westminster. They get to see all the pomp and all the circumstance and, and everything that goes into this. And there's great excitement. They're like drawn into the story. And yet there's also very really a great sense of fear that comes with this. Because on one hand, if you're the royal family, there's like the fear of, well, we're going to be seen as just, I mean, we're just normal people. Like we're going to be in people's living rooms. Like that's, we don't, the royals don't belong in living rooms. We belong in palaces. But there's also the fear of this very young girl, 27 years old. She's going to be taking over the throne. Can she represent on the world stage our country? And I think whenever there's a transition of power, we have those kind of two, one of those two reactions. The great expectation of the hope of new opportunity, of new possibility, of a new era. And then also kind of like fear because what if we really liked what we had? And what if the new, the new ruler's not, not what we wanted? We, um, we're going to talk for the next couple weeks about the incarnation of Jesus, God in Jesus, drawing near to us. Being in a place God had never been before in that very real sense. And the reactions and the responses to that. Scripture talks about in the Old Testament, it points to uh, God's ruling and reigning over all of creation. It talks about a coming Messiah and a coming, and a coming king. One who is going to come and establish God's kingdom here on earth. So tonight we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about man's expectations of kings. We're talk about God's rule and Jesus' kingdom. That passage we read in Isaiah is, um, is an astounding one when you understand the context to it. Uh, what was going on in Jerusalem, which remember Jerusalem was God's holy city of God's chosen people. It was where King David took, uh, took the Ark of the Covenant into. His son Solomon builds the temple. God was, was uh, reigning and ruling. His temple presence was there in Jerusalem. This was the city upon which the people of God would fulfill the purposes of God and change the world. And where we find them at this point in Isaiah is that Jerusalem has been destroyed and all of God's people have been exiled into captivity uh, by, the, by the nation of Babylon. We're talking about man's expectations for kings. Man has always placed far too high expectations in human rulers. We put too much hope in the transition of power from one party to the next, from one president to the next, from one congress to the next. We hope and anticipate and think that this one will finally get it right. This one will finally do what the others never did. And if we can get that one out and this one in, then our problems will be solved. And it's never really quite ever worked out quite like that, has it? And yet, time after time, through the course of all of humanity, we continue to put great expectation on human rulers. And I get it. Like, we want them to do good. I'm not mad about it, but I'm just saying maybe there's a pattern we can pick up on. 
And this has happened all throughout history. I want to share a couple stories that I had a lot of fun uh, just researching for this message of, of great rulers who failed to live up to expectations. There was King Richard II of England, King of England. Uh, he was most remembered for being in a series of endless conflicts, constant threats of civil war, and uh, notably remembered for many failed military campaigns, so he lost a lot of battles. Uh, but ultimately, his greatest claim to fame was that his own wife overthrew him and installed his 14-year-old son in his place. <laughs> Which is like, if you're a grown man, king of a nation, and your wife is like, my 14-year-old can do better than you, sit down, that's not a legacy you want to have. You've got Mary, Queen of Scots. Some of you know that story. She was suspected in the, in, the, in, the, in the murder of her husband. And then she marries, three months after her husband is murdered, she marries the prime suspect in his murder. And then her inner courts lock her up and jail her and overthrow her as well. A lot of lack of, lack of some sense. My favorite uh, is the Roman emperor Caligula. He was the third Roman emperor after Augustus and Tiberius. And you think of the Roman emperor, you think of the Caesars, you think of the powerful military rulers. Well, Caligula comes on the scene. He declares himself a god, which was very suspect at that time. And then he marshals the proud and the mighty Roman army and declares war on the sea. He sends his Roman soldiers out into the ocean or the sea to fight the waves, to collect shells as the bounty of the war that he wins over King Neptune, the god of the sea. That was his legacy. The emperor who defeated the ocean. So I get it. When we talk about God as king, it can be hard sometimes to have a picture of what does that really mean. And it can be hard to see God as sovereign and as good and as just and as righteous because uh, kings throughout history have tended to be the opposite. And what we do is we project our experiences with our fathers, our leaders, our politicians, presidents, we project those experiences onto God. And we say, this is what a king is like. This is what a ruler is like. Therefore, that must be what God is like. But we cannot allow our experiences of man to shape our image of God. Rather, we ought to say, this is what I know to be true about who God is. Therefore, this is what, ought, what man ought to be like when they lead and when they rule and when they reign. Uh, because man is no match for God. And you know that. It's not a, you can write it down, but it's not going to change your life. You knew that ahead of time. Man is, man is no match for God. Well, uh, man's understanding is that when a kingdom falls or a king is slain, that's it. It's over. Like that kingdom, the, the Roman Empire fell and it didn't get back up again, right? Like it, when it's down, it's down, we move on. And if you're an Israelite in captivity in Babylon... And Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed. You have been in captivity for who knows how many years. You're not thinking, well, maybe God will resurrect all of this. You're thinking, it's done. It's, it's over. It's been, it's been 40 years. It's not happening, man. You want to talk about your crisis of faith? Imagine being an Israelite in captivity in Babylon. Going, this was the city, God's chosen city of God's chosen people. His presence here on earth from which he would, he would influence and change the world. And I have been enslaved 
to the nation that destroyed us for 25 years now. And there's no hope of anything coming back. But um, God is the one who authored life and creation in the first place. And so if he wants a thing dead, it'll stay dead. And if he doesn't want a thing dead, well, he'll bring it right back to life as well. So when something is dead, destroyed, and fallen, we know that that's not the end of the story. So Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 52. And again, just for a moment, put yourself in the story as the hearer of an Israelite. This is your story, man. You've been in captivity. Everything you knew of your homeland has been destroyed. And the prophet says to you, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace and bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, which is the name for Jerusalem, you can use them interchangeably, who say to Jerusalem, your God reigns. This is a wild and a profound proclamation that God still sits as sovereign even in our darkest nights and our most hopeless days. Your God still reigns. When it seemed lost, when it seemed over, and when it seemed impossible, it wasn't. And this is the good news that the messenger brings, the one who comes, the runner who comes down the mountain. He tells them, your God, your God reigns. And so when we find ourselves in our most hopeless circumstances and situations, when we question whether God truly is kind and whether God truly is just and whether God truly is righteous and fair and full of covenant love, we must remember that we cannot allow our expectations and our experiences of man to inform what right rulership is from God. What we expect and have an experienced here on earth is not that which dictates how God acts. And we all need to unwind that mindset sometimes because that's our natural tendency is to take our experiences and to project that onto God. Rather, we should look at the reality of the situation, the history of flawed humanity, and just ask the question, is there a better way? Is there another way to do this? Is there another way to lead? Is there another way to rule? Is there another, is there another way? Obviously, I think that there is another way. I think that other way is God's way. And so our second point we're looking at is, is what is God's rule look like? So man leads out of whatever is inside of them. Your leadership is an overflow of who you are. It's a result of the decisions and the practices that you have uh, built into your life rhythms day by day, the things that you do now. This is true not only of being a leader, this is true of being a husband and a wife, it's true of being a father and a mother. And nothing about you changes at that altar, and nothing about you changes in that delivery room except your role and your level of commitment. It will expose everything that's within you, though. And how you lead, how you live, how you act as a father, as a mother, as a sister, as a brother, as a person in the workplace, that's only an overflow of what's, of, what's already, of what's already in you. Like you don't become a visionary when you're appointed to be the leader. You either are a visionary or you're not a visionary. 
You either have vision or you don't have vision. You don't become wise once you get the promotion. You've either lived a lifestyle of developing and seeking God's wisdom or you haven't. You don't develop work ethic and discipline when you're given more responsibility. You show me work ethic and discipline and we'll see that you're ready for more responsibility. And then it will be given unto you. We like to say around here, we, don't, we promote the fruit. We don't promote in faith. We don't promote based on the hope of you becoming something you've proven that you're not. We promote the fruit that is a result of the labor of what you do day in and day out, of the character that is, that is within you. So if you want to be a visionary, you want to be a culture builder, you want to be an influencer, you want to have a voice and a seat at the table, you want to be a leader that people love to look to and love to listen to, all of that is within your control right now, whether you're in the seat or not. It's how you work out your disciplines and your character today that will make way for you tomorrow. That's just leadership lessons from AJ today. A little bit tangential, but I thought it was good for you to share. Uh, uh, <laughs> but this is, this is such a huge problem with humanity because we have such a hard time being um, altruistic. We have such a hard time. We have such a limit on our capacity for good before it turns into selfishness. We have such a limit on our capacity for diligence until we start feeling like, well, I deserve something in return, don't I, for all this hard work I'm giving you. We are so limited in the, in the depth of our character. But the good news is God isn't because God's character informs how he rules and God's character is good. I love this verse. This is Exodus 34. We'll throw it up on the screen. You can read along with it. This is one of the first real full descriptions of God in Scripture. Exodus 34 says this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. A God who's merciful, who's gracious, slow to anger, is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you're starting a list of qualities for a king, it's not a bad list to start with, right? He's merciful. Paul writes in Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy. He's gracious. The writer of Hebrews says he sits on the throne of grace. Let us approach boldly then the throne of grace. Not just is he gracious, his kingdom is built on a throne of grace. He's slow to anger. Peter says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you. Not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. Jeremiah writes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And he is abounding in faithfulness. Deuteronomy, it says, know therefore the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love to a thousand generations. The Bible talks about God's justice his holiness, his righteousness. These are the qualities of our God, the characteristics of our God. And let me add one on that's gonna tie it all together. He doesn't change either. 
So Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Micah 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17 says, these come from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We can trust God as ruler because God's character informs how he rules. God's character is good and God's good character does not change. Insecure kings crumble kingdoms but a secure God with a nature that does not change that is unchangeable who is full of covenant love and faithfulness and that's a place of security and of peace and of hope for the future let's look back at our scripture verse 8 I want to read verse 8 through 10 again and then just make a couple observations verse 8 listen your watchmen lift up their voices together they shout for joy When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. The pictures of of a watchman on the city walls who's looking out on the horizon to see whether it's messengers coming, opposing armies, things that they need to know about. And that's his job. He stands on the city walls and he watches. And out on the mountain range, he sees a little cloud of dust. And he recognizes those little clouds of dust. That's usually the sign of a messenger coming. And that messenger has a a scroll in his hand. And the scroll is good news. It's good news. And this isn't an announcement. This isn't news that should lead us into fear. This is, this is good news that can lead us into rejoicing. It says the watchman begins to rejoice and all the people burst into song. So what's going to happen when the Lord returns to Jerusalem? What's going to happen when God himself comes to rule and reign? Isaiah says the Lord is going to bear his holy arm, which means God is going to show his strength. I got back in the gym this week after, after many years not being in the gym. My coach, I don't call him a trainer. He's my coach. He coaches me. He yells at me, which is what I need. He asks, hey, what you been doing? Have you been working, doing workouts at home and stuff? I said, I've been having kids, man. I've been doing this workout right here. That's about all I do about 100 times a day, though. That's all, that's all I got. But I've been in the gym two days. So I can safely say, the reason I'm wearing sleeves is because if I bared my arms, y'all would see the strength and the power. So I had to wear these big sleeves tonight, man. Got to contain the muscles. But when God comes to lay bare his holy arm, he's coming to show himself strong. He's coming to bear his own strength. He's coming to show his hand interceding in the affairs of man for his purposes. So Isaiah says, God is coming. He is returning. He still reigns. He will bear his arms. So rejoice and celebrate. So what does it look like for God to show himself strong as a ruler? Uh, in, in, uh, in this passage, the Hebrew word for good news, you know, 715, I had to bring some Hebrew words to us. It's my favorite thing to do. Is uh, beser. You say beser. Try to roll that R if you can. 
Yeah, pretty good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Beser. It refers to national news or a royal announcement. So if you're thinking about like issued from the White House, right? A statement from the queen. This is beser. National news, a royal announcement. In the New Testament, you know we see that same phrase, good news, used there. That's the Greek word euangelion. Say that one. Euangelion. Yeah, very good. Very good. Uh, that means good news. It's often translated gospel. That's a word we all know and are probably too familiar with. We use gospel for everything. Just preach the gospel. The gospel will save you. The gospel is all you need. Do you know the gospel? And we go like, well, what is it? And some of us know it's good news, but what is it good news about? What is, what is euangelion? What is the good news it's referring to? It's almost always good news relating to the announcement of the reign of a new king. So when we talk about the gospel and the good news, we're talking about the new king. All incoming kings are announced. They're heralded. And that news spreads. That's why the messenger comes down the hills with news of a new king. And what's being made clear is that this heralding and this announcement is good. It's good news. It's something we want to hear. And we don't have to worry and we don't have to fear. So bring this up to the incarnation. At Jesus' birth, we know the story. The angels appear, a whole heavenly host of them, proclaiming what? Christ is born. A child is here. The king has come. The magi who study the stars from afar in the east see a new star. And their practice teaches them that when there's a new star, what has been born? Not just some baby. Not just some something. A king has been born. A king has been born. That's why they come bearing gifts. That's why they come from afar to meet this one new king. When Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he says what? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Matthew 4:23 as he starts his ministry, we'll throw it up here and read this. It says this, and he speaking of Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. And he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The gospel authors use that same phrase, euangelion, to refer to the gospel of the kingdom. She says that Jesus would go around preaching the good news about the kingdom. The good news about the new reign of a new, of a new kingdom. And so, you know, we've talked about this in church before. Your expectation, any man's expectation of a new king coming, of a kingdom happening on earth. Certainly, the subtext there is there's some sort of uh, power, some sort of authority, some sort of might. Maybe that's in the form of an army, or maybe with these, it's a ragtag band of guerrilla warfare guys who's going to be sneaky. But somehow or another, the ruling power is going to get overturned, and this up-and-coming power is going to take, take its place. But um, Jesus' life and his example say something that's very, very, very different. Over the course of the next few chapters in Matthew, as it says that Jesus was out in Galilee sharing the good news of the kingdom, it gives us the Sermon on the Mount, which outlines for us what life in the kingdom looks like. It says that the citizens of his kingdom are those who love and serve the poor, not those who abuse and oppress them. That the citizens of the kingdom of God, when they get struck on this cheek, when they get attacked, they turn, they turn the other cheek. 
And they respond out of the side of themselves that's not offended. That to live under God's reign means you love and you forgive your enemies. In fact, the highest form of citizenry in the kingdom of God is that you would sacrifice for your enemies and that you would lay your life down for them. The good news of the kingdom of God is that the last shall be first, that the meek shall inherit the earth, that those who are peacemakers are the ones that are going to be called the sons of God. It's an upside down, backward, paradoxical kingdom that don't make no sense to nobody that's hearing it. But look at how God brings about his reign over all people. Remember, Jesus wasn't killed for his teachings. He wasn't killed for his miracles. He wasn't killed for healing people and casting demons out. That's not why they killed him. He was killed because they thought he was a threat to their power. What was hung above his head on the cross? This is Jesus, King of the Jews. What was shouted at him as he hung there? Hail the King of the Jews! Look at him up there, hanging on up there, slowly dying. It wasn't about whether he was a good teacher or a good prophet or a good man. He threatened the establishment's power and sense of security with talk of a kingdom. And how does Jesus respond to a group of religious and governmental authority that see him as a threat and want to kill him? He responds by letting them. How does God bring about his reign over all people? Through a divine act of love and self-sacrifice. This is the message. The glory of the incarnation is in a coming king who would upend our expectation of what life in the kingdom looks like. Of what it even means to be a citizen here on earth. In the glory, in the beauty, in the majesty of what we get to witness in the life of Christ is one who would turn upside down everything we have seen to be true before. That this is how men claim power. This is how rulers lead. This is how it's done. And yet all of us, all of earth, all of creation of humanity is kind of groaning, going like, isn't there a better way? Isn't there another way to do this? Couldn't we, couldn't we stop with the fighting and with the wars and with all this gossip and all this fake news and all of this politicking? and all? Like, cannot we do something else? And Jesus comes incarnate in the form of a man to say yes We can. This is how life in my kingdom looks. You want to be the greatest in my kingdom? Consider yourself the lowest. You want to be the first at my table? Be the last here on earth. You want to be the king of your household? The head of your house? The father to your children? Get some respect around here once in a while. Be treated like you ought to be treated. Jesus would say, model me as I live in humility and with unlimited patience and a deep well of loving kindness. You want to be the queen of your household? You want your kids to listen and respect you or achieve what you want to achieve in your career and be seen as as co-equal and not looked down upon? Well, Jesus would say, model me 
I saw it as a good pleasure to lay my life down, to count it all as loss, to sacrifice everything I've got that others might have, that others might benefit, that others might, might gain. So the beauty of Jesus' incarnation, of his coming as this king of this upside-down kingdom is that it teaches us we don't have to fight for power anymore. We don't have to gain influence the way the world gains influence. In fact, our greatest gains in this earth will come when we do things opposite to the way the world does them. When we see our coworkers not as our competition, but as human individual beings with passions and desires and families and insecurities and hurts and pains and history. When we see our family members not as just irritating, trying to get them on nerves, always doing this, that, and the other, but as sons and daughters of God who, just like you, carry similar baggage and trauma, issues and challenges. And we respond not of the flesh, but of, but of the spirit. We don't have to fight anymore the way the world fights, where the loudest voice wins and the one who is strongest gets to conquer and he just gets to take it. We don't have to live that way anymore. And that is beautiful. And that is liberating. And that is freeing. And that is the glorious truth of Christ who has come. So how do we participate in the kingdom of God? How do we participate in the glory of the incarnation? Two quick ways. You participate as a citizen, which means you turn in your passport to this world and you take up your passport in the kingdom of heaven and you count yourself as one of the citizens of God's kingdom, which means you come under his protection and his government. We like the protection, but you got to come under his government too. It means our loyalty, our allegiance, our sense of heritage, our sense of history is no longer solely tied to this earth, but is in the kingdom. This is identity. We rewire who we believe we are now. We have been called out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. That's what it says in Colossians. We participate as a citizen, and then you participate as an ambassador. You represent the king and the kingdom in every one of your relationships. And you model what Jesus speaks of in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And you live out of the overflow of who Christ is to you, the example that he modeled. And you show that. You go out each day going, I am a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and I am an ambassador for Christ. So those who see me will see something different and something new. They will see a glimpse of heaven on earth. And when I don't badmouth my spouse around the coffee line, and when I don't drink a little bit too much at happy hour, when I have my sense of limits, and when I don't participate in office gossip, and when I don't act the way everyone else acts, but when I choose to forgive first in the workplace, or when I choose to reconcile with my father or my mother, or when I choose to die to myself that others might live, I go, I'm doing that because I represent something bigger than myself. I represent Christ and him crucified which is where I just need to end this because I would be remiss if I don't mention the moment of Christ's crucifixion, which is really the moment of his enthronement. They put him in a robe. They put a crown on his head. They lifted him up high before man 
and they called him king. And you see in Christ crucified, exalted before man, lifted up before man, this beautiful and this haunting and this glorious picture of the king who defeated death with his love, of the king of a new kingdom, of a king willing to lay down his life for each of us. And what man sees as his ultimate destruction, we see as Christ's ultimate enthronement. And this season marks the start of that story. When God comes to earth in the form of a man for us to establish something here that turns our world upside down. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And this Christmas season, God, we just are so grateful for the opportunity to pause and to reflect and to rejoice in the beauty and the wonder of your decision, God, your expression of covenant love, faithfulness to us, that you would enter into our story yourself. That you would model something on earth that we can tangibly see we can tangibly experience. We don't have to wonder or imagine. We can read the word on the page and see how Christ lived as the, as the founder of this kingdom. And we as citizens, God, get to walk in that with you. Let each one of us this season, with new eyes, see you for who you are. To celebrate and rejoice in a king who lays his life down who humbles himself to the point of a servant, that we could inherit the righteousness of God, that we would have something to offer this world that's different than what all of humanity has done before us. God, your plan and your story is so much bigger than just our lives. And we pause and reflect on that. God, the wonder of your majesty and your holiness. God, we give you just right now our our love and our affection and our attention. And I would just say, if you're in the room or maybe you're online and you have never made that decision to take up residency as a citizen of the kingdom of God, that you feel like maybe I've been a churchgoer for a long time, but I don't know that I've been a citizen. I don't know that I would say that Jesus is Lord of my life. He might just be a great teacher and a part of my culture growing up. Let me encourage you in this season, maybe tonight that's you, just throw your hand up so I can see you. I'll just pray with you. If you're online, there's a button in the chat you can click. I'll just, I'll pray for us even if that's you and you don't want to raise your hand. That's okay too. Let's just pray and mark this moment as one where we, where we do just that. You can pray, pray along with me like this. Father God, I thank you for your faithfulness and your love shown to me. God, I repent of my sin and the life I lived. I confess that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. And God, for myself, I want to be a citizen in the kingdom of God and an ambassador here on earth that all who see me would see you. Help me, God, to live and to walk in that way, I pray.